This is My Rain Gauge is Busted, a podcast produced by Agriculture Victoria. I'm Ethan Berry, and here we talk about all things climate and farming. In this episode, we talk to the man behind the break and the very fast break, Dale Gray, about the La Nina climate driver. Dale provides regular seasonal updates and outlooks for farmers in and around Victoria and is here to give a sense of what La Nina means and crucially what it doesn't mean for farmers in southeastern Australia. But first, Gemma Pearl is going to explain why we are interested in this climate driver. No doubt you have heard the terms La Nina and El Nino. And while these drivers are typically associated with wetter and drier conditions respectively, this is not always the case. On average, we would expect to see a La Nina one in every four years, with an El Nino and two neutral years completing the bunch. In the last hundred years, there have been somewhere between 25 and 30 La Ninas, so roughly working out to be a quarter of the time. We asked Dale to take us through some of those years. Yes, there's been periods in the past that people would remember that have been classically really wet. And some of those classic La Nina years that people might have heard of uh, were the Olympic year in Melbourne, uh, which was 1956, which was very wet in northern Victoria. And then the next one that was iconically really wet was 1974, so some more than 20 years there onwards. Um, we had to go a lot more years on until we got to 2010, where we then got to the one in most recent memory, which was very, very wet as well. There's been obviously plenty of other La Ninas in between those times. Some of them have been wet, some of them have been normal, uh, and some of them have been actually quite dry, Um, like good old 1998, one of the totally rubbish ones, in fact. And then you've got a double La Nina at uh, 2007 and 2008, and 2007 in particular was absolutely very ordinary season. To really understand what a La Nina is, we need to explain how they form and what are the key characteristics of a La Nina event. So the scientists, when they're identifying La Ninas and El Ninos for that matter, are looking at an area of the ocean in the centre of the Pacific that they call Nino 3.4, and it covers sort of some 30 to 40 degrees of, uh, of longitude, and it covers plus or minus five degrees of latitude north and south of the equator. So, you know, rather than just dipping a temperature probe in one spot in the middle of the Pacific and going, oh, it's an El Nino, they're covering hundreds of thousands of square kilometres and getting the temperature off that from satellite and the buoy readings to give us the measurement of what the temperature is. They look at other regions as well, such as Nino 3, which is a slight shift of that box more towards uh, the Americas. And then there's Nino 1, 2, and there's Nino 4 as well. But uh, what's interesting is that the positioning of temperature changes in Nino 3.4, what happens in that box in particular seems to have a greater correlation with rainfall changes in eastern Australia. And El Ninos and La Nina is a phenomena that form along the equator from the Americas out into that kind of Nino 3.4 box. But the strength of the temperature changes that are occurring in that Nino 3.4 area tend to have a greater influence on us. But of course, what's uh, more important is how the temperature changes around Australia and to our north. And so La Niñas are classically where the ocean along the equator from the Americas out to the middle of the Pacific is cooler by some sort of 0.8 degrees. The Americans use a a threshold of 0.5 degrees, much lower than us. You know, they call a lot of very weak La Niñas, which don't do much. The Australian Bureau has a threshold of 0.8, so it's a little bit more solid. 
you know, once you get to point eight, you can be more guaranteed that something's probably actually happening as opposed to a little flash in the pan that then kind of dies away. So a La Nina is a 0.8 degree cooling of that area of the ocean. It's not even one degree, it's such a tiny little temperature, uh, and yet it makes a massive difference to the world's climate. The Pacific trade winds are especially important in a La Nina. In their normal state, they blow in an easterly direction from South America through to Papua New Guinea. But as Dale explains, it's when the trade winds change that interesting things happen. When we have a La Nina, the trade winds are accentuated along the equator, really from at least halfway along the equator in Nino 3.4, right across uh, through to the Western Pacific to near Papua New Guinea. And those trade winds are blowing a lot stronger from the east. And as a result of that, they are physically pushing the water in that area further to the west and to the north of Australia. And uh, while those trade winds are blowing stronger, they're holding warmer water to the north of Australia and not letting it go back to where it wants to be out in the central Pacific near the international dateline. Those trade winds are all pervasive. They can very strongly push water in a different direction or in a more accentuated direction in the case of La Nina and hold it there. While those trade winds are blowing stronger, they're holding the warm moisture source to the north of Australia there for, you know, some three, four, five, six month period as an increased sort of moisture source. Of course, if the trade winds blow in the opposite direction, uh, which they sometimes do as a result of the Madden-Julian oscillation or a cyclone in the area or just a sort of random tropical weather, that can put a reversing force on the ocean and uh, send it back in the other way. In fact, not only does it push the ocean water at the surface over to the east, but it puts a downward force on the ocean as well. And it forces some of that warmer water at the surface under the ocean. And it sends it on its way over towards South America. This has got a fancy term called a Kelvin wave. Uh, And the Kelvin wave of warmer water in this case is really the turnoff key for La Nina. La Nina would just keep going and going and going if it wasn't for this sort of process for where you can get a reversal of the trade winds, send some warm water underneath, send it over towards the east and nullify the cold water, which sort of decreases that pent-up emotion for coldness in the deepness of the Pacific and brings you back more to the neutral condition again. The middle of the Pacific Ocean is very far away from Australia. So you're probably thinking, how can that water be affecting us? How it affects Australia's climate is that that cold area of water in the central Pacific influences warmer water to the north of Australia. And warmer water is critical for evaporating more moisture into the atmosphere. And as a result of that, if you get the right triggers, you can drag some of that extra moisture down. And so what was interesting in the summer of 2010 was that the sea surface temperatures were a record level of warmth to the north of Australia. And by definition, that had to be evaporating a record amount of moisture into the atmosphere. And perhaps not unsurprisingly, given the right triggers, areas of eastern Australia somewhere got record amounts of rainfall. There's very good correlations between all three of those things, the ocean temperature, the evaporation and the rainfall. The area where there is warmer than normal water also greatly affects the position of cloud. 
Well, there's normally a big, massive cloud at what we call the intertropical convergence zone, which is at the junction of the equator and the international date line, which is not quite in the middle of the Pacific. It's a little bit sort of to the west of the middle of the Pacific. And that's where the very warmest part of the Pacific Ocean normally is. And that's where cloud is forming off that warm ocean and it's causing lower pressure in that area as well. Now, when we have the La Nina condition, which is just an accentuation of the normal process in the Pacific, the trade winds are blowing way stronger from east to west. They're pushing warm water to the north of Australia. And that low pressure uplift zone of moisture and evaporation forming cloud shifts to the north of Australia. So not only is the ocean surface warmer, it's evaporating more and it's condensing and forming more cloud to the north of Australia. And so once again, that's an indicator of the moisture source being turned on and better. One of the indicators discussed when talking about La Nina is the Southern Oscillation Index, or the SOI for short. This has to do with pressure patterns and is sometimes not a great indication of climate driver activity. So this accentuation of winds and lowering pressure to the north of Australia and increasing cloud also changes the pressure patterns right around the equator, uh, such as we've got lower pressure to the north of Australia. Lower pressure to the north of Australia is like pushing water downhill down towards the southern regions. Anytime you've got higher pressure in the tropics, it's like pushing water uphill. So not only have you got a better moisture source up there in the north, but when the pressure is lower, it's just easier to get the moisture down as well. So the indicator that we use to measure the pressure is called the Southern Oscillation Index. Uh, and it's a pretty blunt stick, just two pressure readings, one at Darwin and one at Tahiti out in the sort of central southern Pacific. And so when we've got a La Nina, that warm water to the north of Australia is evaporating more moisture. There's air masses going up, so the pressure is lower in that area. And out in the central Pacific where the water is cold, there's no cloud. There's a lot less going on there. And the air mass is actually descending over the top of that region and causing much higher pressure. So the SOI is positive when we have La Nina-like conditions, when you've got lower pressure at Darwin and higher pressure uh, at Tahiti. Uh, now, the SOI jumps around all over the place. It's, it's measured daily. Uh, it's affected by all kinds of tropical weather, particularly over summer, where it's a fairly erratic kind of thing to be looking at over summer because things like cyclones just dramatically affect the SOI. But you're always, rather than looking at daily readings, you always need to be looking at a 30-day reading of the SOI to sort of average out of some of that kind of weather stuff that's, that's going on. And generally, between values of plus or minus five, plus or minus seven, you know, the Pacific uh, and the El Nino and La Nina and the pressure patterns there are deemed to be basically doing nothing, just bouncing around between normality. But once you get above plus or minus eight, and in the case of La Nina above a value of plus eight, that would normally be deemed to be pressure conditions that are linked to La Nina. So we'd expect to have lower pressure at Darwin and higher pressure uh, at Tahiti. So we have a history in Australia of probably looking at the SOI a lot 
as the reading of La Nina and El Nino for that matter. But in reality, the SOI, is a, it's a surrogate measure of what's going on out there. An actual El Nino or La Nina is measured out there in Nino 3.4. That's where it's going on. But to get, you know, to get a proper coupled La Nina, you need the SOI, the pressure patterns to be linked up and, and doing the right things uh, as well. So the critical thing is, is always look at the central of the Pacific Ocean to see what's going on there, then look at the SOI. And if the two of them are saying the right things and they're both singing from the La Nina hymn sheet, uh, well, it's time to prick your ears up. So Dale mentioned coupled events and coupled La Ninas, but what does that mean? Now, this all links to the principle of La Ninas and El Ninos, for that matter, that are coupled versus uncoupled. Generally, when people are talking about La Ninas, they're talking about is the centre of the Pacific in Nino 3.4, is it colder than 0.8 degrees than normal? Is it colder? And if it is, people would say, well, that's La Nina-like temperature. But in terms of the response that we see, well, we need to see the trade winds blowing stronger. We need to see warmer water to the north of Australia. We need to see extra cloud forming in that area. And we'd expect to see lower pressure. But sometimes you get what's called uncoupled in so events. And so you may have the ocean temperature in the middle of the Pacific desperately putting its hand up at probably the front of the class going, I want to be a La Nina. In fact, I am one right now. And the atmosphere above saying, I'm not having a bar of that at all. And the SOI just sitting there at normal, no actual cloud pattern formation. And in some respects, that's what we saw this year in the 2020 spring event where the La Nina was saying, yes, I want to be a La Nina out in the Pacific Ocean, but we didn't get any of those cloud and pressure patterns forming classically like we'd expect, which indicated that there was kind of something up with this event that wasn't classically like we saw in 2010. So you get these uncoupled events. And I think that's what leads to the fact that sometimes we have La Ninas that are La Ninas, but they're not properly coupled or the ocean's not that warm to the north of Australia, or perhaps we have another climate driver that's working against the La Nina. And that kind of happened in 2007 and 2008 for that matter, which were both La Nina events according to the Pacific Ocean being cool enough in terms of the threshold and perhaps even the pressure patterns being roughly right too. But but 2007 for much of Victoria was the second driest La Nina on record. And that's in people's recent memories. So not only did we have the 2010-11 ones doing something, but we pretty recently had ones that were absolute fizzes of an event. And if they were in people's memories, that was probably not helping their uh, belief that 2010 could come through with something. But it's, it's always interesting as to how there's nearly always someone on the eastern coast of Australia who turns out to be wetter when you have La Niña's. It's just that it's always a different spot. Some years it's everybody, but most years it's not. Most years it's very spatially distributed. Some areas are wetter and some of them is, may in fact be, be drier in La Niña. Over 2020, there was a lot of talk about the forming La Nina, but while it was similar to 2010, Dale explains that no two La Nina events are the same. So the models were predicting a La Nina all year, quite early on from sort of May onwards. Uh, It really didn't come together until September in terms of an actual fully functioning one. 
And then the rainfall started to pick up in October and November, sort of patchily across Victoria. Then we've had a La Nina over the whole of the summer, but the actual rainfall response, uh, unlike 2010, where the whole state was much wetter over summer, uh, this year, the 2020 uh 2021 La Nina over summer has been much more patchier in terms of where's been wetter and where hasn't. What was interesting in the 2010-11 summer was that as spring was out and was sort of in spring looking at the summer predictions, uh, a lot more models, there started to be a much stronger consensus for wetter for summer. And of course, that was a bit unusual because often La Nina's over summer are a bit hit and miss. The models were sort of predicting it to be wetter, much the same as they were for this year's event. And we started to see some very emphatic forecasts from the models, which were predicting it to be much wetter, as opposed to be just a bit wetter. And that was a bit hard to believe too, because we hadn't seen anything like that before. Uh, And yet some of those models clearly were right. It was absolutely much wetter. So that sort of gave us a bit of heart, I suppose, in future years that, you know, when the ducks are lined up, the models or the model in 2010-11 was really good at picking up that things were looking turned on for making rainfall and wetter indeed. Um, and yeah, many areas had, had record rainfall. So I think that this current land in it, people were remembering the previous one and they were probably making some comparisons between the two. All, all events are different. No, no two are the same. But we did have a number of models that were making predictions like in 2010. And so I think it was probably prudent for people to be at least making some plans and being concerned for wetter. That hasn't really turned out to be the case in many parts of Victoria. So it's sort of, you know, this La Nina perhaps reverted back more to the statistical kind of things where La Nina's over summer in Victoria have historically a bit hit and miss. And this one's certainly been the case. And the La Nina itself, more like weak to moderate. It wasn't a strong event by any stretch of the imagination. Which is interesting because it's often that people make a connection between the strength of El Nino or the strength of La Nina events and make correlations with the potential strength of the rainfall response. Uh, And that's, in fact, if you look at the statistics, there's a very poor relationship with those. We've had very dry seasons in very weak El Ninos and we've had very wet parts of Australia like we did in the summer of 11-12 with quite weak La Niñas. So the actual strength of the event, which is measured by what's going on in the centre of the Pacific Ocean, is no great indicator of what the result might be. This is the nature of the way they they form and behave. We very rarely see El Nino La Niña behaviour in autumn. It's a phenomenon that normally develops during winter, normally appears in spring and normally decays in summer. But every now and again, you get events that muck around in winter, they form in spring and they are active over summer and then die in early autumn. Everything dies in autumn and then reverts back to normality. And then you you start another season and something may or may not uh, happen. If you were going to sort of put a rough figure on it for Victoria, about half of the La Ninas have been in the wettest third of records, so much wetter than normal. But you'd probably have about 30, 30% of them that have been average. You know, people wouldn't tend to complain about those. Um, there's probably been 20% of them, I suppose, that have been 
in the driest third of records where people might be a bit sort of narky that the, the Larnini completely failed to fire. So I think it's interesting that when we read newspaper articles and we, we see the word La Nina, uh, we'll often see the word flood appearing somewhere in the next 10 words, likewise drought with El Nino. But the reality is that that has never, ever been the case. There is no uh, perfect link between these phenomena and what actually happens. So if you just look at any historic record and you know rank it from lowest to highest, uh, a third of the years are dry and a third of them are average and a third of them are wet. Uh, but La Nina spins that up to a 50% chance of being in the, the wetter end of things, but, but doesn't deny the fact that you might in fact have a lower chance, but a non-inconsequential one that it might actually be dry. Many farming families and businesses have fantastic long-term weather records, so you could look at how the rainfall results on your property line up with the different La Nina years. Well, the first place is the Australian Bureau of Meteorology. It has a fantastic uh, list of previous La Nina years and it has some fantastic commentary about how they've performed and whether they were coupled or not. But uh, we've done the hard work for you here at the break and we've, uh, we've taken that list and we've put it into a website called the Local Climate Tool. And what that allows you to do is to interrogate those La Nina years and look at the rainfall that's happened at varying locations in southeastern Australia. And for that matter, you can see the other climate drivers there as well, but we're, we're talking about La Nina. As ever, Dale is a great source of seasonal climate information and its impacts on agriculture in southeastern Australia. We greatly appreciate Dale giving up his time and willingness to share his knowledge. For more Dale commentary, don't forget to sign up to the Fast Break and Very Fast Break. The link is in the show notes. O-S-O-I-N-S-S-T And what on earth is an IOD? Can someone please explain to me? Stay up to date, get the break. Dale has shown us that no two La Nina events are the same. And while it does spin up the odds, sometimes they can still be pretty dry. We hope that this episode has shed some light on the La Nina climate phenomenon and how it affects seasonal conditions in southeastern Australia. You can find more helpful links in the show notes or get in touch with us at the.break at agriculture.vic.gov.au. Catch you next time. S-O-I-N-S-S-T's. And what on earth is an IOD? Can someone please explain to me? Stay up to date, get the break. Or keep your eyes out for Enso. Will it rain then? If so, when so? The farmers need you to be specific. What's happening out in the Pacific? For westerly wind bursts blow away. All our hopes of that rainy day. And will this year bring an El Nino? Come on, tell us, Dale. Because we have to know about SORs and SSDs. Thank you for listening to My Rain Gauge is Busted. For more episodes in this series, find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear your feedback, so please leave a comment or rating and share this series with your friends and family. All information is accurate at the time of release. 
contact Agriculture Victoria or your consultant before making any changes on farm. This podcast was developed by Agriculture Victoria.